podcasters, and welcome back to the dark woods of Hoosierville. Like always, I'm your guy, American Wolf 2. Today episode is Dogman Encounter in Indiana. It was about five years ago, late at night. I went for a walk in the dark to clear my head one night when I got the feeling that I was being followed. Before I could say anything to dark, fur-covered creature lunged out of the nearby bushes. It looked like a large man crossed with a wolf. It had deep green eyes and an elongated snout. The thing smelled like a rotting deer carcass and it was very heavy. It slammed into me, knocking me to the ground where it stood over me and growled as it looked me in the face. I kicked it and it yelped before swiping at me, cutting my arm with its sharp claws. I was sure it was going to kill me, but then a noise similar to a car with a broken muffler backfiring scared it and the creature ran away. Strangely, my arm no longer felt like it was bleeding, and the cut wasn't hurting anymore. My shirt sleeve was torn but when I wiped away the wet blood from my arm, there wasn't even a scratch left behind. I was sure that it was just a bad dream and so I headed back home. I never reported this because I was certain that nobody would believe me, and because it hasn't been haunting me every day since. I haven't seen this creature since it ran off into the woods when that sound scared it off, but I sometimes worry that it might come back. I also don't know why the scratch on my arm was gone moments after the thing ran off. Everything Elf found about it online has said that it was a werewolf, but I don't think those are real. It also isn't like the Dogman or any other similar kinds of creature. If you have heard of anything else like this, I would be interested to hear about it. Thank you. George Bottori reported during the night that he'd shot a large animal near his campsite. The next morning park rangers found a naked man with a bullet wound in his shoulder. The man, later identified as Sam Gould, refused to press charges. Neither of the men knew each other, nor did they have any connection that investigators could find. Those are the facts and they are strange enough in themselves, but to make it stranger, Bonhori maintains he did not shoot a man. The whole matter could have been easily dismissed as a hunting accident if he hadn't insisted on going to court to protest his innocence. When I arrive at his home on a small suburban cul-de-sac he tells me almost immediately that he's decided that an appeal would be too costly, but he insists, in spite of the court's decision, that he is not guilty of involuntary manslaughter. It wasn't a man, he says. I saw. I might have shot to kill if I hadn't been so scared. What exactly did he see or think he saw? The clue that through the list of witnesses he wanted to call, mostly biologists, at least five of whom were in Canada or Alaska, but also folklorists and anthropologists. It's hard to see how any of them could offer anything that would bolster his case. They have to know, he says. They have to know these aren't just stories. While he goes to the bathroom I examine his bookshelves. He has a whole series of books titled Lumping It Easy and several more on camping and hunting. 
At the end of the shelf is a cluster of books about mushrooms. I flip through one that's full of colorful photographs and diagrams clearly marking every species as delicious, inedible, or dangerous. He finds me looking at this book when I return and launches into a talk about mushroom hunting, how there are five types easily identifiable by anyone that are not only edible but very good. Were you collecting mushrooms when you were camping? They'll ask. I hope the question doesn't sound too obvious. Mr. Bottori, with his short hair and straightforward demeanor also doesn't seem like the type to engage in recreational drugs of any sort, but I've heard you never can tell. He shakes his head, waving the question away. With the drought you're not going to find any mushrooms out in the woods. His wife, a tall, slender woman with a halo of red hair and pale blue eyes, comes in to tell us lunch is ready. Once we start eating I try to bring the conversation back to his conviction. You understand why it sounds pretty ridiculous, I say. A large creature like that roaming around the woods here just seems too incredible to be true. Do you know what I saw? He slams his fist down on the table. After a few minutes of silence, I'll tell his wife the paprikish is delicious. The chicken floats in a sauce that looks like blood. Even though I felt obligated to talk to Mr. Bodhori, he's not the real reason I'm in Glasgow, a small town in southwestern Indiana. The real reason is a woman liminal only call Alpha. A month earlier, after Elle written up a brief filler about the shooting, she emailed me to tell me she wanted to confirm his story. She also added that there was more to it. We stroll along a busy path through a state park. As we get deeper into the woods she inhales deeply. I work in an office but this is where I really belong, she says. How often do you come out here? Every chance I get, an unseasonably cool breeze passes through us. I'm at a loss for what to ask next when I remember the moon was only a sliver in the sky over my hotel this morning. I ask if I should have come closer to a full moon. She looks at me, frowning. It's not a lunar thing. It doesn't work like that. Do you know where that comes from? Tell me. There's all kinds of myths and stories about lunacy and the effects full moons have on people but the idea that we're bound to the moon comes from Hollywood and Hollywood got it from Petronius. Except Petronius doesn't say it's a full moon. He just tells the story of two slaves who spend the night in the One of them sees the other strip down and transform. He can only see it because of the moonlight. The change really can happen anytime. It's not something we become, it's who we are, always. All the time, we stop. Alpha looks around, there are people here. There were a few other cars in the parking lot when we arrived but I haven't seen anyone. They're about 15, maybe 20 minutes ahead of us on the trail, she says. One shouldn't be telling you about us. Why did you contact me then? She sighs. Because you seem open-minded. Because you were asking about the shooting and it has all of us. Edge. These things have happened before but we've never had anyone make so much noise about it. 
It's never been this public. It got some of us thinking maybe it's time to come out. We have so much to lose but so much to gain too. Like what? For one thing we don't know how it happens. My mother wasn't like me. She would have told me. And I never knew my father. We don't know if it's genetic, but if it is, it's safer for our children. We continue walking. I ask if there's any evidence that it's passed on by a bite, like in some folk. complicated than that, like it just pops up in people random. But if you come out there might also be efforts to try and cure you, I say. There are stories about the two. Wolf's mane, silver bullets, alpha turns and glares at me. You think Sam got shot by some camper who just happened to be carrying a rifle with silver bullets. Reach the end of the trail alpha shakes my hand. I need to get back to work. It has been nice talking to you. We'll pick you up tonight at 7. I thank her politely but inside Elma laid it. I've passed the test and will get to meet the pack. The van pulls up at the front of my hotel a little after 7. The late summer sun is still high in the sky. It's humid and I've been dousing myself with bug spray to keep the mosquitoes at bay. I open the back to toss in my gear. Then, as I'm climbing into the side, I come face to face with a man with a thick, long beard. He looks at me suspiciously then turns to the front where Alpha sits in the passenger seat. Is this a good idea? He asks. Alpha's reply is blunt. Yes, the other three passengers, two women and an African-American man are friendlier. They introduce themselves to me as Kathy, Linda, and Larry. Larry invites me to sit next to him. The bearded man will only tell me his name is Bayna, and he spends the trip staring out the window. Once we get underway I ask if anyone minds answering a few questions. I try to address this to everyone in the group, but I'm intrigued by Larry. He grins widely and says, what do you want to know? A hundred different things, let me start with the obvious. How did all of you meet? Kathy turned around. It started with me and Alpha. We met when we were Girl Scouts. We were in different troops but using the same campsite. That's how we met each other one night. Out roaming the woods alone. We've been friends ever since. So you were. Different, she says. But we both knew we needed each other. And we needed others. Linda interrupts. The internet has been what's brought us together but you have to be careful. Most people think we're crazy. Some people want to join us and it turns out they're crazy. How can you tell? Linda's nostrils flare. You smell like a skeptic. And bug spray. Yells Alpha from the front seat. God, let's crack some windows. Linda's right. I am skeptical. But while I've tried to keep my questions neutral, it's not exactly a revelation. Even though stories of lycanthropes extend across the northern hemisphere and almost every culture has its stories of humans that turn into animals including dolphins, the idea of meeting the real thing still seems incredible. I ask if she thinks I might. 
It's hard to tell through the bug spray and deodorant and hotel soap, but I don't think so. The others, aside from Beta, agree. I continue asking questions and learn that they do these camping trips at least twice a month from March through October, tapering off to just once a month in the winter months. There are a few other members who aren't attending, apparently put off by me. The band's driver is Carl Hogelberg, is not really a member of the pack but a trusted outsider who only serves as chauffeur and won't be staying with us. When we get to the parking lot of the place where we'll be camping I offer to help carry gear which makes everyone laugh. This group travels light, I'm the only one with a pub tent and a sleeping bag. I also brought two thermoses of coffee, anticipating a late night, an early morning, or both. Everyone else has rolled blankets and small bags for carrying food, water, and cooking gear. We set out for the campsite. Larry brings up the rear and I walk with him. We chat and I learn during the day he's a librarian, mostly behind-the-scenes stuff. Everyone else is quiet. Alpha and Beta leave the group and talk a little as we go. Kathy and Linda walk single file in the middle. At the campsite everyone puts their bags down in a circle but Alpha advises me to set up my tent on a ridge about a hundred feet away, to be safe. Safe for whom? I decide not to ask. Once my tent is set up I rejoin the group. Everyone's eating field rations, MREs, in self-heating packages. We used to build fires but it was too distracting, says Alpha. From what? I ask. Everyone looks at each other. They could attract others. Someone also had to stay up and make sure the fire was put out so nobody would step in it or get scared away. This way we all get to relax and just be ourselves. Larry hands me an MRE, and with you here, he says, I don't get stuck with the vegetable lasagna. I'm not sure what the joke is but laugh along with everyone else. The sun sets. Someone places a small portable lamp in the middle of the group and soon the others are just five faces bobbing in the darkness. From their conversation they could be almost any group of hobbyists. Alpha complains about a difficult co-worker. The other's advice is generic. Then they start to talk about previous camping trips, about the time in late March there was a light overnight snow. During a lull Linda pulls pulls a flask. She hands it to Alpha who drinks then reaches across the circle to me. The others all watch. What is it? I ask. I wonder if I'm being drawn into some ritual. This is a plan to make me one of them. There are stories of potions and moonlight ceremonies. Some werewolves are born, others are made. Drink, says Alpha. I tip up the flask and take a mouthful. Warmth fills my mouth and then spreads through my chest and body. Whiskey, I ask. Scotch, Linda tells me. It's tradition but for you I brought the good stuff, the 12-year-old single malt. I feel honored. I pass the flask to Larry who shakes his head and motions to Beta who takes it and has a long pull. Kathy and Linda receive it next and then it goes back to Alpha who then hands it to me.
This time after drink I hand it to Beta, and it makes the same round again two more times before Kathy turns it over. Time for bed, says Alpha. I climb up to my tent. Behind me the lamp is turned off. As I crawl into my sleeping bag I hear murmurs. I feel. I like a kid who's been sent to his room so the grown-ups can talk. I keep the tent flap open but they're all in darkness now. The waxing moon is just visible through the trees on the horizon but doesn't cast enough light. And then, somehow, I sleep. For a moment I'm not sure where I am. The moon is directly overhead now. I hear rustling and can make out shadows moving. I flick on my flashlight and aim it at the clearing below. There are blankets spread out, but I see no one. As I raise the light, bright green eyes shine back at me. Against the stars I see the silhouettes of hunched figures. There's a crackle of leaves, then the scream of a rabbit. I can't move. I am unarmed and alone. A long howl echoes from the hills around me. That sounds like a creepy pasta, but growing up in southern Indiana, you learn things can get really weird, so there's a high percentage that story is real. Sorry for the robot voice, I lost my voice. Peace out from the dark woods of Hoosierville.